Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 16th, the Thursday, 2023. We've been celebrating Women's History Month this month with a particular uh, focus on... Um, International Women's uh, Issues. It was uh, International Women's Day, the United Nations International Women's Day last week, 8th of March. We've done some entertaining and intriguing shows. One with the journalist Patty McCracken on a group of uh, Hungarian women uh, just after the First World War who murdered several hundred uh, Hungarian men. It was rather entertaining and astonishing murdering that they eventually got caught. Not all our celebrations of Women's History Month have been quite as murderous or as bloody. We did a show a couple of days ago with the novelist, uh, first-time novelist Kristen Loesch, the, who has a new book out, The Last Russian Doll, a, a wonderful novel about the relationship between two 20th century Russian women uh, reflecting Russian history and particularly female Russian history. And then yesterday we did a show, again, celebrating International Women's Month with my uh, Bay Area friend, Tiffany Schlein. Uh, she has a new art exhibit uh, celebrating tree rings in San Francisco. And her tree ring celebrates 25,000 years of America, uh, not of American, of, 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 of women's history, each with specific dates. But looking at that, I noted that in 1949, she wasn't celebrating something that we're going to talk about today. In 1949, there was a revolutionary feminist conference, uh, uh, and that is covered by my guest today, Elizabeth B. Armstrong. She teaches at Smith uh, college, and she has a new book out, Bury the Corpse of Colonialism, the Revolutionary Feminist Conference of 1949. And she is joining us from Northampton, Massachusetts, where um, Smith is based. Uh, Lisa, uh, welcome and congratulations on the new book. I have to admit, I studied modern history, but I wasn't familiar with this conference. And it's not the best-known conference in the world. Tell me a little <laughs> bit more about it and why you've chosen to, to write this book. Yeah, it is definitely not the best-known conference. Um, this is something that I stumbled upon as I was doing work on uh, the Indian women's movement, um, and I'd seen reference in Teen Murthy, which is an archive in New Delhi, to this conference that had happened, and I thought, this is something I've never heard of before. And that began a long quest to figure out what this conference was, what has happened, who attended, how it was organized. Um, and really, a lot of that detective work was just um, slogging it out in the archives around the world, trying to, trying to find out the information about it. Um, one of the things that intrigued me very early on is that the places that it most likely would have been recorded and the records be kept were, were not available. So... Um, the Women's International Democratic Federation, which was sort of the, the host organization for this conference, um, their materials were in Berlin. And um, after 1991, they were perfectly accessible. But this particular fragment of history 
those archival records were missing. Um, so I went to Amsterdam and I went to the Aletta archives and I could find everything around the years of this conference, but nothing on this conference, just the preparations. Well, before, um, uh, Liz, so before that's we get, why. Right, so before we get to the conference, 1949 um, is as memorable, I guess, as any year, as much happened or as little happened. But I don't remember any major events in 1949, obviously, four years mm -hmm. after the end of the Second World War, as the European colonial world is beginning to disintegrate. It was, of course, the year of the Chinese revolution, Chinese right. communist revolution. Is that the most significant thing to happen in 1949? I think so. The formation of the People's Republic of China in 1949 was um, sort of the watershed of that year. I think I think you're right. Uh, and then in terms of UN conferences and women's conferences, there was one in 1939, an all-Asian women's conference. Tell us about this one and how this connects with your uh, revolutionary feminist conference of 1949. So there was actually one in 1930, the, and there was one in 1931, and there was one in 1947. Um, so maybe it's the one in 1947 that you're thinking of. And it was very important. Um, it was called the Asian Relations Conference, and it was heads of state um, in, in Asia. And they were sort of discussing how do we... Um, how do we shepherd out our colonial rulers and imagine the governance um, of the independent nation that remains? And within the Asian Relations Conference in 1947, there was a location, there was a, smaller meetings just for women um, and very few women attended them. There were women at the conference, but they felt like they were being sidelined by having a particular uh, gathering just for women. Um, so those were, according to Caroline Stolt, who's done a lot of really good uh, research on these conferences, um, were not that popular in 1947. And it was a much more high level um, heads of state kind of meeting. Lisa, paint the picture of, I know this is a rather broad question, but you can mm -hmm. do it. You're a historian. You've written about this. Women's role broadly in the anti-colonial movements against the European powers, uh, less so perhaps in China because it wasn't a formal anti-colonialist movement, but certainly in Africa and in South Asia. Mm. Are there generalizations one can, can make? Uh, none of, I mean, most of the, the best known anti-colonial leaders were, of course, all men. Mm. So uh, let's take this period in right after the end of World War II. Um, if you look in the case of India, there were a lot of very high profile women in the anti-colonial movement who were taking up positions um, in the government that was resulting after the formation of India and Pakistan. And um, in India in particular, they, they held quite prominent positions. Um, in the case of another anti-colonial movement in Vietnam, um, there were also women in, I wouldn't say at the highest level of leadership, but just one rung down was a whole slew of women leaders who were part of that Vietnamese anti-colonial movement. In the People's Republic of China, again at this period in the 40s, it, it changes at different decades, um, there were some heavy hitters. We think of Song Qingling, but... Um, there were others as well, people like um, 
uh, Lusui and and um, a, a couple of other really key members. So at this moment in the 50s, perhaps it's surprising, perhaps not. If we go to the continent of Africa, look at Madagascar, um, Giselle Rabasalhala was the leader in that um, anti-colonial movement because of the mass jailing of perhaps one of the reasons was the mass jailing a lot of the men leaders in that time. Um, in Ivory Coast, um, there again, it was a woman who helped to do a lot of the organizing within West Africa. So it, it, this moment in the 40s is slightly different from the kind of consolidation of power in these decolonizing movements um, that, that occurred in the 1950s, where they moved more into State Department type roles rather than leadership roles or formation roles of these anti-colonial parties. And what about as the, so to speak, foot troops of the anti-colonial movement? Mm. Uh, were, were the the movements, whether they were in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, movements against the European colonizers, France, Holland, Belgium, the United Kingdom, mm. um, was there a, a, a balance of, of, of men and women or did, it, did these movements tend to be dominated by men? Mm, that's a good question. Again, one would have to be clear about the region. I think really what we're talking about, and this is what I became so interested in, is we're talking about peasant movements. Um, so mm. we hear about the leaders, and these are the people with the educations, maybe who traveled abroad, went to the Netherlands for their education or to Britain. Um, but if you look at these anti-colonial movements, we have to look at peasant people because they would not have succeeded without uneducated, probably illiterate, um, with a very kind of regional focus in terms of their activism. So these weren't the people going to international conferences, but they were the people fighting on the ground. So I think at that level, one could say um, that the numbers were equivalent, um, particularly on those occupation land wars. So if we look at Vietnam or if we look at, um, um, if, even if we look at West Bengal and India, that peasant movement, Tabaga movement, which was, it was also a fight against landlords. So it was a fight against the landed, moneyed Indian people. And in Indonesia, simul similarly, or even in the Philippines, um, in Vietnam as well, there was that in China, there was a movement against the large landowners of their country. At the same time, they were fighting colonial occupation. So once we start looking at that double uh, movement, it, it, it requires um, both men and women being incredibly active in that struggle. Lisa, when was the non-aligned movement formally born? Was this before or after 1949? I think formally it was after. Um, I think one could say that the Asian Relations Conference was an early formation of that, but the non-aligned movement was after 1949. Many people look to the Bandung Conference in 1955 as a way to kind of mark um, the, the, um, um, the emergence of the non-aligned movement. Um, and I think that's what made me so interested in this conference. I was curious, what could this conference of left-wing women in 1949, how could there have been an impact on these later conferences that we think of as the beginning of these movements? Lisa, to what extent, I mean, the, the title of the book, Bury the Corpse of Colonialism, <laughs> it could have been made up in some marketing department of the Kremlin. Um, <laughs> to what extent was this movement um, appropriated or controlled by uh, the Soviet Union or even mm. leftist Chinese 
uh, organizers of one kind or another? Mm, that's a great question. Well, as you probably guessed, this, the title of the book comes from the conference. Um, so one of the things that they would say, and this comes out of Eslanda Robeson, who was a um, activist in the United States, um, uh, who was there as a journalist. And in all of her notes, she, she keeps that slogan to bury the corpse of colonialism. Um, yes, the Soviet Union was active um, in supporting the conference. So it didn't really come from the Kremlin. Um, I don't think that they were, uh, this was exactly the level at which they were operating, but it was, um, had some financial support because of the Women's International Democratic Federation, but it also had support from uh, communist women from France, from the United States. Mm. Um, so it, it was a left-wing movement and it did have um, quite, material and, and serious support from uh, left-wing forces around around the world. How did the left, the female, the, the beginnings, I guess, of a, the feminist movement in the United States and in Western Europe, how were they connected with this anti-colonial movement, particularly African-Americans, of course, for whom mm -hmm. settling in America and slavery was as many people have argued, a, a form, a, an offshoot of colonialism. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, it's true. A lot of African-American women were heavily involved in the Communist Party at this mid-century point, actually right from its formation in the early 20th century, in the case of the United States. Um, and they were very much part of this meeting. So the first um, inklings um, was of this conference that happened was the formation of the Women's International Democratic Federation. And most of the members, or, or a large portion of the members coming from the United States to that formation in 1945 were African-American. They were part of this early civil rights movement. Um, and they were directly in the conference um, proceedings, they were directly making the connections between Jim Crow segregation in the United States, the lack of access to education, the right to vote, and colonialism and fascism. And so what happened at this moment was the fight against fascism was also a fight against Jim Crow segregation, was also a fight against colonial occupation. So that linkage and that language from coming out of World War II was absolutely part of its formation. And I think it's part of how they developed their theory of organizing so that it wasn't wasn't African and Asian and Latin American, later Caribbean, who were also at this conference in 1949, um, women fighting on their own as part of the global South or the colonized world. But their argument was that those women coming from colonizing countries or imperial countries have to be part of the struggle. They have to be fighting in their own countries, whether it's to dismantle Jim Crow segregation um, or to demand the end to military occupation around the world. Lisa, this all sounds rather orthodox. It perhaps is rather like some of the academic conferences you may go to where everyone agrees on everything. Was there much disagreement? Did Golda Meir, for example, show up, a, a leftist Israeli, although I'm mm. sure yes. Zionism wasn't there. There was a leftist amongst. Israeli there. Uh, yes, Ruth Lubitsch. Uh, what uh, were the debates? I mean, what did people... I mean, obviously, no one's going to stand up and support colonialism or the Western powers, but what were the issues i'm guessing and mm. please correct me if i'm wrong yeah that there was a sort of a a, a pro and anti-soviet conversation perhaps not 
formally, but certainly, mm. certainly there must have been women there who thought to themselves, we, we don't want the European powers, but at the same time, we don't want to replace them by Stalin or Stalinism. Mm. I think the way the fight came was not around Stalin. Um, what I understand was there, there were some disagreements um, regarding the forms of anti-colonialism and how to get there. So one of the fights was how to um, end occup colonial occupation. Um, the European delegation, this has been a fight brewing since about the year before, 1948, it came out into the open, was the, the argument that this was too um, uh, militant, it was too oppositional. So Andrea Andreen from Sweden argued we have to be more even-handed. Um, so when Typically we Swedish, talk about... Yeah, the Swedes are always <laughs> even-handed. At least and, it wasn't the Danes doing that. I well, they weren't even about the Danes in the picture. On this show. I'm sure <laughs> there were some the Danish Swedes. women there being very even-handed, were there? Uh, um, not in not in Beijing, but they were there at the conference in Moscow that happened right before the, the conference. They, in at least, so wherever you go, they're always Danes, making us all feel <laughs> bad about the success of their model. And so the language they wanted to use was the language of peace. They kept saying, you keep talking about this militant language of anti-imperialism. That's alienating, they kept saying. That's alienating to American women. They're right now, they're in the middle of this anti-communist HUAC. You know, all kinds of things are happening. So, right. so be a little softer, be a little kinder. Um, stop calling American women imperialists. Um, that doesn't sound very nice. So there was that disagreement was um, brewing. There was another disagreement which, I, which I've been trying to figure out. I'm, I'm not sure, it, perhaps there's more to be said, let me put it that way, um, around uh, what was the role of China um, in these movements? Mm. And well, it was what, in Beijing, so there yeah. must have, I mean, yeah. I, I mean so the, explain, I mean, again, I, I apologize for the dimness of this question, but given that the Chinese seized power, the Chinese Communist Party in 1949, was this a conference that was agreed on and arranged before or after the Chinese Communists actually seized power in Beijing? Um, well, it, it was supposed to be in Calcutta, actually, in 1948. So it was late. By their, by their marker, 1949 was a year late. Very late. Um, Yes. Uh, and what happened was Nehru said, no chance. You're not having your conference in India. Um, they had just held a conference in Calcutta in 1948 in February with the students, um, the International Students Federation, and it had resulted in revolutions around the world, um, including Malaya, what was then Malaya, now Malaysia, in Indonesia. And Nehru's government was like, no chance we're hosting this bunch of women in Calcutta. So they got the hard no. And then it was going, there was an invitation from Indonesia. And then due to what was happening with the Hatta government, that got rescinded. And then once it seemed, it was April of 1949, once it seemed clear that, that, that uh, People's Republic of China was going to happen, they gave the invitation and so it was set for December. But the truth is when the conference happened, there was still strafing of Shanghai. So a group of, of the women who came to the conference went south to Shanghai and had to travel at night so they wouldn't get uh, bombed by aerial uh, bombardment. So the Chinese communists, again, I'm not an expert in this area, but there was a, a, reasonab a reasonably healthy 
minority of women within the party, uh, even in the military struggle. Is that right? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, that's why the 40s is such an interesting period. It was before the before there was sort of a displacement in, in a lot of these movements of the women who were right there in the thick of things um, from the late 30s, I would say, early 40s onwards. Is it also fair to say, Lisa, that this was the moment when people still believed in international conferences? It was at the beginning of the United Nations. The ideal mm. of internationalism was still very sexy, very progressive. Today, no one, I mean, people still go to conferences, but they're not announced in the language of, of, of your 1949 revolutionary fe feminist conference. Things have changed yeah. dramatically, haven't they? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think this was that also that moment when they were hoping for the United Nations to actually support anti-colonial movements. And that itself was a struggle. So even while they were holding these international conferences, they were right in the trenches of the UN and allied members were right there in the UN trying to figure out how do we gain recognition for countries that are not considered independent nations, which are not independent nations. Um, and how do, we, how do we make sure that this isn't that post-World War I period where the colonial powers reassert dominance in colonized territory. So they were, they were very much invested in these international conferences. And I've, I've been wondering myself, I mean, a country that still, the People's Republic of China still didn't have full control over the territory they were calling a unified nation at this moment. And yet they're inviting, there was a conference, this is the second conference held in the People's Republic of China that was international. The first was the Trade Union, World Trade Union Federation, why were they hosting international conferences before they actually consolidated the nation state? Um, and so I think you're right. I think there was, it was a, a way to get international recognition um, that they weren't yet getting from the UN. It was a way to say, we are actual nations. We, um, at this point, China did not have recognition from Britain, from anywhere in Europe, from the United States. Um, they were really fighting for um, to be seen, to be, to be recognized by the international community. So I think they were playing a very different role at this moment. I'm guessing that Chiang Kai-shek didn't send any of his female associates to this nope. event. Nope, none of them, none of them were at this conference. There was one held in uh, Sri Lanka, uh, in Colombo, um, I think it was 1952, in 1952, and Chiang Kai-shek sent um, someone to that conference. Was it all all women, or were there men there at, at all, or was it an, an entirely uh, female conference? It was an entirely female conference. Joe and Lai on the first day did host a dance, and they waltzed. Um, so there were men in the evenings, um, but during the day, it was it was all women there. So it must have been. I mean, we don't know much about it. You bring it back to life in your book. What was it like? Was it very serious, very intense, the kind of conferences you put on perhaps at Smith College? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if it would compare or the two are of the same ilk. I think it was cold. Um, it was in the middle of winter. Uh, well, I assume there was indoors. It wasn't outdoors. Palace. It was indoors, right? There was no heating. Uh, so oh, yeah. December in Beijing. Uh, folks were wrapped up in whatever they could find. So it was cold. Um, 
and the photographs, I think they had more fun at the end. They were touring different. I, I think the conference looks pretty, pretty serious, pretty speech heavy. Um, but there were all of these um, musical acts and a lot of tumbling troops. Uh, Korea sent a large artistic set of um, uh, young people uh, to entertain them. So that's my sense that it was a lot of speeches, but then and and then banquets that went on until about two in the morning. So a lot of so drinking, was, like the men's I, conference. I have the feeling there was some drinking in there. Yes, that is my sense from from the journals I've read. So standing back now, uh, more than 50 years, I mean, 70 years later, Elizabeth, mm. more than 70 years later, some people might say, well, so what? What did this achieve? I mean, this was before the Korean War began, I'm guessing, or yes. just as the Korean War was beginning. It was before, before Vietnam, uh, before the United Nations flowered briefly, but today it it's a, an institution that doesn't seem to have had a great deal of impact one way or the other. Did this conference or these series of conferences uh, put on by women around anti-colonialism, did they make any difference? If they hadn't happened, would the world be in any way different? Hmm. Let me think about that. I think what they did was demand the world pay attention rather than segment this off into just a few people's problems or one part of the world's problems. So I think what they did most effectively is actually visible around the Korean War, but also in the Vietnam War. They set up these linkages of communication that crossed um, the borders of the, of the combatants. So women from Great Britain were talking to women of what was then Burma or Malaya, which were British occupied at that time. And it meant that there were other channels of communication that weren't just through the State Department or through the channels opened up by the UN. Um, and I think that made a huge impact. In fact, it's, it's well documented in the Vietnam War, once it moved from French occupation in 1958, 1959 to American occupation, there were still those connections between women on the Vietnamese side and uh, women on the U.S. side. And that made a huge difference in the, the Vietnam War struggle in the early 1960s, before the U.S. even admitted it was engaging in a full-scale war. Um, I think in the case of um, the struggles around the world, it created those linkages. So it said... Um, we, we look at APSO, Afro-Asian People Solidarity Organization, which started in the early late 1950s, early 1960s, or the Bandung Conference in 1955. These were setting the template for those relationships that came out of these, um, out of these connections. So that whole idea that there could be a politics that was not Soviet um, socialist or U.S. European uh, capitalist that comes out of this moment in some ways as well. So I feel like that early, those early tracks and then to look at some of the differences is incredibly helpful for understanding the decades that unfolded. Were the Yugoslavs there? I assume that maybe not teachers. Oh no, they were not, not after 1948. They, um, they departed for a few years because of that uh, um, Soviet uh, struggle. Given the schism with the, with the, Russia, with the Soviets in, in mm -hmm. 1948, wouldn't... Mm -hmm. Wouldn't they have rather been quite keen on these sorts of pre-non-aligned 
events? Yeah, I mean, they, they would have. They were not at this one precisely because of that. Um, and it was a huge fight within WIDIF in 1948. That was an absolutely an area of disagreement on how to handle that and what happened with which elements of the Yugoslav group were, were allowed to remain within WIDIF. And then when they came back, what their role was, it was, um, that happened the year before and it had, it, it meant that there was, no, there was one woman from Czechoslovakia, but there was no one from Yugoslavia. So to end, uh, Lisa, it's an interesting story. What, um, what, what came out of it? What was achieved um, today? And, 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 and what can we learn? Maybe you've already dealt with the question of what was and wasn't achieved. It doesn't sound as if anything enormously concrete was achieved. But today on International Women's Day or the, a week after International Women's Day in March 2023, Women's History Month, um, what what can we learn as we move forward? We being humanity in general. I'm obviously not a woman, but what 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 are the uh, the lessons that can be taken from your book and this event? This rather uh, poorly known event that you've brought to life. I'm assuming one of the reasons why nobody knew about it was because the press was controlled from abroad and no one wanted to uh, publicize an event in communist China. But um, you know, and today if if it, it if they put it on again today, it would be all over social media, on Instagram and Twitter and probably TikTok. But that's another story. What, what can we learn positively about this? I, what to me is the most interesting is the theory of organizing that came out of it. I'm, I'm very interested to know that there's a longer history to internationalism, to international peace movements and to to figure out how in this period after World War II, women were saying, this is what peace could look like. This is how we could fight for peace on terms that helps everyone. So rather than think of it just in a partisan nationalistic point of view, what would internationalism mean for an international peace movement? And I think that notion of coordinating solidarity, so it isn't the global South against the global North or the occupied by the occupiers, but instead, what are the tenants that we hold in common and what would the struggle for those tenants look like? Do you think, Lisa, that this would have been an event in which Muslims and Hindus from South Asia or uh, Serbs and Croats or Arabs and Israeli Jews would have, being able to talk to one another a little better than their male counterparts? Yes, they were there. Um, and maybe not as the way you set this up from the 1990s onward, but yes, there were women there who were either of religious differences or regional struggles, or, you know, th there were many differences that were represented. And I think what they held, they, they sought really carefully to, to hold a few things in common and hold also the differences. And that's something that I'm also really interested in is how do you maintain the differences that exist, but still imagine those locations for a solidarity, for an internationalism.